Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Well, we're at the last chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. And I'm going to just read from the beginning of that chapter. But the conclusion here, we could have talked about many things. The conclusions of Paul's letters are sometimes as emotionally riveting as anything else he writes. The names and lives he involved. I think of the passage at the end of Timothy that he says, Bring my cloak and bring the, the parchments, especially the leather ones. Think of the history there and the, the people that he's left them with. The names and, and lives that are involved in his personal affairs. And Corinthians is no different. At the end here, he talks about his beloved son, Timothy. Timothy is his close worker. He talks about Titus. He says about Timothy, if he comes, don't give him cause to be afraid. Don't, don't scare him. He's doing the Lord's work. Don't despise him, perhaps because of his age. He's young. But send him away in peace so that he may come to me. He talks about Apollos. That we begin this letter that there are divisions in the church. And one of the divisions are people that are following Apollos over and against Paul. And it's interesting then that Paul says, Well, I tried to convince Apollos to come and see you. And he will do that, but he would prefer apparently to come, I guess, can only speculate, but maybe when this division is, is undone. He talks about Aquila and Priscilla. He's with them in Ephesus. They were there in Corinth, that they were fellow tent makers. All the brethren greet you, know, greet one another with a holy kiss. So he's in Ephesus, he's writing to Corinth, he talks about wanting to come. But one of the key things that he talks about, and this is what I want to focus on, is the first three verses. Let's read together. It's concerning the offering that he mentions. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So he's taking up this offering, not for himself, but for the church in Jerusalem. If you think back, Paul in Galatians described when he and Barnabas and Titus, they went to the Jerusalem council. And they said, yes, you be the apostle to the Gentiles. He said, they only asked one thing, that we remember the poor. And he says, I was eager to do that. And now, ironically, the poor is the church in Jerusalem because they're experiencing a famine. And Paul makes it clear that this is not an offering for him. He, in fact, has refused to take money from the Corinthians because he doesn't want to in any way be confused with these super apostles that are talked about in 2 Corinthians, who in fact seem to be abusing the Corinthians financially. And so he's saying that, I'm not going to take any money from you, but I will take your money and take it to Jerusalem 
but he wants them to appoint men to accompany the offering. He doesn't hesitate then. The command the apostles gave Paul, remember the poor, and Paul sees this as an opportunity to show that there is unity between the Gentile Corinthians and the Jewish church in Jerusalem. That there is Jewish acceptance of the Gentile Christians and Gentile acknowledgement of the Jewish Christians. If you'll turn where Paul talks about this offering most at length is actually in 2 Corinthians. Let's look there a minute and he describes the offering and its purpose. Chapter 8 verse 1. We want you to know brothers and sisters about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia for a, during a severe ordeal of affliction their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Here Paul is saying to the Corinthians, now we're taking up a worldwide offering and I want you to know that the church in Macedonia, they are a poor group of people. They don't have a lot of money. They've been very generous. And so he's kind of creating a, a competition of generosity and love. I can testify, verse 3, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. They've devoted themselves entirely so that we might urge Titus that as he had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous un undertaking among you. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, we want you to excel in this generous undertaking. Paul's urging them. We're taking up this offering. It seems like he's actually done this twice. And they've not apparently come through. He says in verse 8, I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice it is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it. So apparently they've taken up some money, but he said, that's pitiful. Finish it. So that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need. You're very wealthy people in Corinth, and apparently there are people with large households that that's where the church is meeting. We've already seen that there's a problem between the rich and the poor. And so your present abundance and their need is such that their abundance may be for your need and vice versa in order that there may be a fair balance. 
As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. There's our economy for the church. There's the koinonia. This offering, bridging Jews and Gentiles, is Paul's economic effort to unify Christians in an economy of sharing and love. And there, I guess there's nothing more tangible than money, right? To help the poor. Now, the point here is not that the early Christians were communists. That is, complete communalists. It's true that in the church in Jerusalem, people freely shared their possessions. But the Corinthians are having to be coaxed. So it wasn't an automatic thing. You need to give a respectable amount of money to aid the poor. And this gift in Paul's understanding reveals the economy. I think we can see, you know, in his explanation, that there is something quite pointed in this effort, in this offering. He says in the book of Galatians that the dividing wall of hostility is broken down in Christ Jesus between Jews and Gentiles. And this dividing wall being broken down, this re removal of this barrier, this is for Paul the archetype of salvation. And money shared by Gentiles and accepted by Jews is the token, I think, of this salvation, of this accomplishment. The money stands in place of the wall of hostility as a bridge between these two formerly alien communities, alien religions. Now, Judaism, I believe, is not unique in this. That is, it's not, its law is not simply the only barrier. That's what Paul is describing. But because it is representative of all dividing walls, between all peoples. There is a universal reconciliation depicted then in the breaking down of this dividing wall. And money shared between these two groups is in a sense, in and of itself, a kind of counter to the religious economy or to the economy of the world. Now we know this is true in other places, equating love of money with idolatry. This is in Colossians and 1 Timothy. That is, love of money or greed is idolatry, Paul says. And I think this goes to the heart of what is happening here. That the koinonia fellowship overcomes the economy of the world in this sharing. Life is relationship, it's interaction, it's giving and receiving. We are called to fellowship and emotion and faith and hope. But where money becomes the most important thing, it stifles this fellowship. Everything that would otherwise be a living interchange, a service of mutual help, just becomes a dead piece of paper. And this is called mammonism, right? Love of money, mammonism, it seems to be a religion. It means valuing wealth and converting human relationships into material relationships. Now money in itself, of, of itself, is not evil, but it can become evil if it swallows up relationships. This is the satanic nature of money, I believe. This is the wall that Paul is breaking down. We have financial relationships 
that are no longer personal, no longer part of a fellowship of faith and life, and they become an end in and of themselves. This is the religion of the age, right? The God of this world is clearly mammon and going under the name of capitalism. Like the New Testament, there is the sense, I think, we need to name this religion. Now, capitalism is just a case in point. It's the, the refinement of all that I think we could expect in a religious system. Nothing is made an absolute something. That's what idolatry always does. And the nothing is the surplus value which is not to be found in any ex actually existing entity. It is the only true value, this excess value. Exponential desire, you know, how much is enough? Well, you just consume, literally sacrificing the planet in poisoning and despoiling its resources. And there's no counter value. You know, human survival, care for creation, care for those who are being sacrificed, are unable to halt the slaughter. And I think we can name this New World Religion. Maybe it's not sustainable. I think it's not sustainable. But it seems to be all-pervasive and irresistible. And so to defeat this thing, I think we have to name it. We have to say it's like idolatry, like the New Testament does. It's built on love of money. But defeating idolatry, you, if you could go in and defeat, you know, spend your life destroying the idols of Baal, they may just replace Baal with Kali. Improvements might be made, you know, maybe fewer human sacrifices. But people will always devote themselves to the gods of the culture. And these gods, you know, whether they are atheistic, whether they're Christian, whatever, will bear the image of their makers. And so I think it's important not to be blinded here by the form, you know, oh, we can just manipulate the economy, we can make it better. I don't think that's the point. Love of money is the problem. So re-engineering capitalism or exchanging for something else, that's the joke in the former communist Yugoslavia that, well, you know, it used to be that we didn't have limos. And now every good communist drives a limousine in Yugoslavia. Well, how is that? And he said, well, formerly the guy that owned the limousine in town, the party boss, he just drove it for himself. But now it's the people's limo and he drives it on behalf of the people. No big change, right? Capitalism re-engineered or any economy exchange for something else, it might improve. I'm not saying there can't be improvements, but the point is that as Christians, we depart the economy of the world, whatever that economy is. Think of the Aztecs. You might have convinced them their idea was that they had to continually offer sacrifices, human sacrifices, or the sun wouldn't rise. They needed to offer human hearts and blood. But just teaching them physics, probably doesn't get at the root problem. The gods are at the service of a very particular economy extracting life from death. Now you might as well go and ask Donald Trump to give up his wealth or health and wealth gospelers try to convince Joel Osteen that give up his gospel of health and wealth or name brand Christianity to sell its possessions. The big 
thing now is that, oh, we can manipulate capitalism in evangelicalism. But Christianity co-opted by capitalism, I believe, is blinded by the God of the age. And that's what Paul has warned about in chapter 2, that we are blinded by the God of the age. And only an apocalyptic reordering of the world permits us to name this idol from the clearing, I think, of somewhere else. We have to stand outside of this economy. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to those blinded by the God so that they cannot see the light. And so locating the love of money, I think, with idolatry means that this too, how do we, what do we do about this? Well, what do you do about idolatry? I think Paul has said the idol is nothing. We don't need to have our lives ordered by this thing. Capitalism is the same process as idolatry, gaining symbolically in the realm of the law or of the gods through a process of destruction as is found in every idolatrous system. So it is a system of total consumption as with every idolatrous system and the logic is pure nihilism a commitment to the transformation of concrete material plenitude into immaterial absolute value. One is morally bound to amorality. Greed is good, and the lust of the eyes is cultivated. This is the passage from 1 John, descriptive of sin. More is the goal. And so just as idolatrous religion consumes the lives of its worshipers, so too capitalism is aimed at uninterrupted, planet-despoiling, life-destroying consumption. And it's destroying the, the world itself, it's the world body. And the living interchange of life becomes a death exchange in which relationship to others is displaced. Relationship to God, relationship to the planet, is converted into an exchange value, a dead piece of paper. Maybe at this point in history, it's easy to comprehend that capitalism, nationalism, like any religion, requires its walls. That the wall is also the killing field, and vice versa. This is obvious again in primitive religion, in Aztec cosmology, the sun god, whose name I cannot pronounce, was waging a constant war to, to ward off the darkness, but of course to simultaneously ward off Aztec enemies. They've now done studies. Who gets sacrificed at the Aztec temples? And they're able actually to go back and check the DNA, and they've discovered, well, actually the sacrifices were of enemy peoples enemy combatants, so that they're literally slaughtering their enemies in the religion of their gods, and the human sacrifice is the barrier defining the Aztecs and warding off their enemies. The religion works in a strange way. Think of Paul, who once stood firm in the breach of hostility, the dividing wall, as a Pharisee attempting to seal up the border between Jews and Gentiles, which he saw Christianity as breaking down the wall. This was his whole effort on the road to Damascus. Christ was sacrificed. This was the very reason that Christ died 
is that he claims that he is going to destroy the temple. And so the Jews want to ward off the Roman wrath by this revolutionary Jesus, which of course eventually comes anyway in 70 AD. And so they kill Christ to save the nation. Paul, as a Pharisee, was willing to make more human sacrifices to arrest Christians for the cause. But in taking up this offering, he has a very different explanation of Christ's death. You know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. This sacrifice transforms the economy of Israel. The sacrifice of the temple, the orientation to Gentiles. The new Israel and the true Jew will now worship in a temple not made with hands, but crafted among the peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, in which the dividing wall is broken down. And Christ's purposeful impoverishment, he became poor that you might become rich, is to be imitated by his followers. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. That you've been enriched by Christ, and now you are to join the koinonia and share your riches. I do not mean, he says, that you should, for the relief of others, have pressure put on yourself, but he says it's a question of fair balance. You have abundance and you see a need, and that's the purpose of your abundance, in order that there maybe a koinonia. Economies of lack necessitating the sacrifice of others is undone in the koinonia, in the economy of the church. Paul sees the death of Christ as ensuring the end of these economies through the economy of, the, of I believe, the new temple. And the purposeful impoverishment and generosity is not a vocation just for a few. In Paul's universal vision, Jews, Gentiles, that's the only kind of people there are. That's everybody. It embraces the world, and koinonia then is also to embrace all people and to displace the God of the age. Idolatry, capitalism, they both depend on disparity, on human sacrifice, either outright slaughter or the wage slavery which impoverishes the many for the few. In the koinonia economy abundance is not for accumulation but for relief of the poor and opportunity. In capitalism by legal definition a corporation is an entity that has a singular purpose capital gain, accumulation of wealth, in Paul's explanation, abundance is a sign of an imbalance that needs correcting, a gift that needs to be shared, an opportunity to give, and in turn, to become an opportunity. As you give, you may need in turn. And this economy is pointedly aimed at destroying the barrier of human identity, human religion. This is the whole thing that is taking place in this offering. This economy of koinonia is pointedly aimed, I believe, at creating an alternative economy that is it's aggressive, in a sense. Paul is aggressively taking up this offering. 
He's giving it to the Jews. He's not sure they'll take it. He's worried, actually, whether they'll receive it. And so he's using generosity as a kind of leverage to bring people together. I believe that's what we're to be about. If ever there were an anti-capitalist creed, it is to be found in the koinonia of Christ. This purposeful poverty and dispossession explains why the New Testament does not, there's no qualification in its condemnation of riches. Luke 4.18, Jesus' good tidings are for one group of people, the poor. And the prosperous and rich, Luke 14.33, are disqualified as disciples. Every one of you who does not give up all that he himself possesses is incapable of being my disciple. In Matthew and Luke both, the choice is between being rich and suffering judgment, or you can store up heavenly treasure, but you cannot do both. The choice in Matthew is between mammon, you can worship that God, or you can worship the true God. And this gets at the truth that money can become a godlike power in any economy, serving a kind of religious identity, unless this money is sacrificially given away. James says it most strikingly, Come now you who are rich, weep, howling at the miseries coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and moths have consumed your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like a fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. See the wages you have given so late to the laborers who have harvested your fields. Cry aloud. And the cries of those who have harvested your fields have entered the ear of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived in luxury and lived upon the earth in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. James depicts it in an absolute and unqualified choice. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. It seems to be a reference to Christ. In his depiction, one is either with the dispossessed Savior, the righteous man, or you're with the wealthy. But you can't do both. Biblical Christianity is geared to expose idolatrous religion, but we have to name the idol. We have to say, here it is, and expose it, and not worship it. And the Christian koinonia must be as dispossessively generous as Christ, as her Lord, so as not to be found, as James says, among those whose gold and silver will consume your flesh like fire. Basil of Caesarea, in conclusion, gives us a simple explanation. Is not the person who strips another of clothing called a thief? And those who do not clothe the naked when they have the power to do so, should they not be called the same? The bread you are holding back is for the hungry. The clothes you keep put away are for the naked. The shoes that are rotting away with disuse are for those who have none. The silver you keep buried in the earth is for the needy. History's Sabbath, I think, is one that we are to enact. It's a breaking in of koinonia. I don't think we can kill this God. It is not that sort of thing. It's nothing and cannot be slain. 
And so we might ask frantically and helplessly, what can we do? Well, don't worship it. Don't feed it. Instead, realize that with God as our Father, nothing is withheld. All that is delightful and useful is in our reach, and all things then are to be shared in a community of love. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.